This is Edison McDaniels. This time around on the Surgical Fiction Podcast, an excerpt from Theodore Plivier's shattering account of the destruction of the entire German Sixth Army in the decisive battle of World War II. This is probably the best World War II novel ever written. And now, Chapter One of Stalingrad by Theodore Plevier, narrated by Edison McDaniels. First, there was Gnutki. It was a gray November day, and August Gnutki carried a spade. Eight yards long, two wide, and one and a half deep was the pit that Gnutki, Aslang, Hube, Denger, and Gimpf had just finished. Sergeant Gnutke, Technical Sergeant Aslong, Corporals Hube and Dinger, and Private Gimpf outwardly did not differ at all from one another. They wore neither shoulder straps nor insignia. Their hands and faces were as grimed with dirt as their uniforms. Once, long ago, they might have been hands and faces and uniforms of men. The last shovelful had been dug. Hube and Dinger picked up a stretcher. Gnutke and Gimpf another one. They moved slowly, without pausing, without looking up. They had stuck their spades into the pile of earth beside the pit. Now they trotted off with the stretchers and disappeared into the mist. This was happening in the region to the east of Kletskaya, in the loop of the Don River between Kletskaya and Vertiaki, in the area of the 376th Infantry Division. To the west... The great river rolled downstream under its winter coat of gray ice. To the rear, two days' march eastward, was the dawn again, for here it swings around in a great arc. Beyond the dawn and another two days' march to the east lay the Volga and Stalingrad. This was the northern flank of the division, along the dawn. Ahead and behind, underfoot and in the air, was the front. It was a good post for the disciplinary battalion. The orders read, The term of punishment is to be served in the farthermost front line. The punishment shall consist of the most difficult and dangerous work, such as mine clearance, burial of the dead, etc., under enemy fire, etc. The regulations further specified, Pay, to be curtailed. Uniform, to hinder desertion, uniforms without insignia. Insignia of rank, collar tabs, and shoulder straps to be removed. Shelter, less comfortable than that of the other troops. Mail, at discretion of the officer in charge. Packages will not be distributed, but will be held by the unit delivering mail. Association with other units or civilians is forbidden unless in line of duty. Lighting, none to be supplied. Privileges, will be granted in special cases only by the officer in charge. Gnotsky had been in the disciplinary battalion for ten months. The campaign of the previous winter and the march on Moscow had corrupted him. His refusal before assembled troops to obey orders had earned him a stiff sentence. The case of Private Matthias Gimp was also an inevitable result of the last winter campaign. In a trench behind the frozen Shistra, on a day when trees cracked with the cold and the wind whipped fine powdered snow into men's faces, Gimpf had stood in a thin overcoat and torn boots, and, 
like all the rest had kept his hands in his pockets while the regimental commander was inspecting the positions. When spoken to about his unsoldierly attitude, he had responded with an uncomprehending smile. He had not removed his hands from his pockets, and as the adjutant had put it in his report, had not even clicked his heels. Thus, he had provided a dreadful example of the low morale of the troops, and his sentence had been correspondingly severe. Sergeant Aslang had not been with the squad long, and the two corporals, Hubei and Dinger, had been sent up with transport from the rear quite recently to fill out the ranks. Gnotke and Gimpf had formerly been attached to the 4th Panzer Army, and with it had crossed the Kursk steppes. While the engineers cleared narrow paths through the minefields, the chaff of the winter campaign, soldiers like Gnotke and Gimpf sometimes aided by local villagers, women, and adolescents, and evacuated Jews from Warsaw, Budapest, and Hamburg, cleared away the rest of the mines. These groups of chaff worked on either side of the lanes when the army had broken through, their numbers constantly diminished by casualties and replenished by more Jews and more natives. They were as much a part of the army and of the eastward offensive as the armored divisions, the shock troops, and the infantry attached to the Panzer Army. More than once, Gnotki and Gimpf had been knocked flat by exploding mines. They had been bruised and their skins flayed. Sometimes they had even had to wipe pieces of flesh or entrails from their faces, all that remained of the man or woman blown to bits next to them. But they themselves had not become casualties. Then their sector had been taken over by Italian and Hungarian troops. For this reason or perhaps because the southern front was already beginning to consume men more rapidly and therefore had greater need of human chaff, with a whole truckload of their kind, they had been attached to a regiment on the march. But they had not gone far. They had been unloaded again in Veluki and once more assigned to an engineer company. They went on working their way across minefields and clearing barbed wire entanglements under shellfire, this time attached to the 6th Army following it across the Don steppes and deep into the bend of the river. Here they lost many, sailors from Norway, men who had stolen army property, psychoneurotics from the Luftwaffe, former truck drivers who had suddenly been thrown into combat and whose morale had cracked under fire. But Gnotki and Gimpf, these two grains of sand, were again spared and were transferred to another squad. In the northern loop of the dawn were troops of chaff who kept to their foxholes by day and emerged at night, moving like ghosts over the river lowlands as they laid log roads. Once more it was those who were exhausted and unnerved, the men who were the last remnants of shattered regiments, who perished here from artillery fire or from fever and exhaustion. Between Kletskaya and Vertiaki, the German advance had ground to a stop. At Kletskaya, the Red Army had driven a bridgehead over the Don, a key post for future operations. Farther south, at Kalak, the 6th Army's drive advanced across the Don and over the plain between Don and Volga until it reached Stalingrad, where it came to a halt in the labyrinth of ruins. But here, in the Don noose, positional fighting went on for a long time, and men marked time, fought, and died on one spot. A great mass of German and Romanian troops were assembled opposite the Russian bridgehead at Kletskaya, which represented a severe threat to the Stalingrad northern front. Corduroy roads and pontoon bridges were set up again and again, and as often hacked to pieces by the Russian artillery. 
For weeks, the corpses of German soldiers floated down the Don. On the plain and in the hilly terrain to the east and north of Kletskaya, there were many dead too. Gnotki and Gimpf were put to work burying them. By October, they had buried almost the entire battalion to which they belonged, including three company commanders and the battalion commander. Commanders of battalions were to be provided with coffins of rough boards, company commanders to be wrapped in shelter halves, and the enlisted men of the tank divisions and blankets. Such, at least, were the instructions to the graves registration officers, and perhaps these instructions had once been carried out, but no longer, nor were ceremonial volleys fired over the graves even when entire half-companies were interred. Divisional chaplains held hasty services in the presence of any medical aides, truck drivers, and stray supply servicemen whom they stopped on the road and hailed over to the grave. This more solemn part of the internment took place without benefit of Gimp's and Gnotki's attendance. They observed it only from a distance as they dug the next grave. Grave upon grave they dug. October came and went, and it was November snow in the air, the ground frozen, crevices and hollows filled with drifted snow that was often coated with a thin layer of ice. From the bottomlands in the dawn, clouds of vapor billowed up as from a vast laundry and rolled over the landscape. Now and then there was a distant flash like lightning in the upper layers of mist. Then the roar of cannon would be heard, and somewhere in the mist a fountain of snow and frozen clods of earth would jet up the soldiers in their dugouts and trenches crouched underground. The ammunition was brought up each morning toward dawn, and rations were not brought up until it was dark. Hardly a man ventured to lift his head above ground during the day. Only the burial squads walked about freely. Today, more than ever, they resembled phantoms floating through the mist. One in front, one behind, they melted into a single shape with a laden structure. The mist distorted all forms. A man on horseback who suddenly appeared looked as if he was riding a dog. And Hubie and Dinger, with their load between them, Gnotki and Gimp with theirs, looked exactly like heavily loaded barges moving slowly down a river. The pit, dug originally by Russian women and old men, and widened by Aslan, Hubie, Dinger, Gnotki, and Gimp, had been intended as a mass grave for the scattered dead of the last few days. They had been given provisional burial and were now to be disinterred and placed in a common grave as a memorial to Hitler's triumphal march to the east. But an attack two days ago by 28 tanks and an infantry battalion had been beaten off with heavy losses by the Russians and the burial crews had been forced to revise their plans. Now, in addition to the weak old corpses who belonged here, the grave had to be enlarged to receive the dead of the tank division and the assault battalion. All the signs indicated hasty interment. Here would undoubtedly be yet another forgotten grave. The deathmen, as the members of the penal battalion were called, had been the only witnesses of such services before, had stood by the new grave they were digging and watched the overworked chaplain and the grave's registration officer suddenly appear, mumble some words into the mist, and vanish as swiftly as they had come. Then the deathmen would return to cover the mass grave with earth. As for shrouds, it was the middle of November, and the army had already been through an initial period of sharp frosts. Where, when winter equipment was being supplied to the living in scanty quantities or not at all, were they to get shelter halves and blankets for the dead? Wrapping was necessary only when the burial crew had to carry dismembered bodies, 
and then only on the brief path to the grave. One blood-soaked shelter half had to serve again and again, and at night the burial squad often spread it out on the damp ground and slept upon it. Hubie and Dinger returned to the pit, set down their stretcher, tipped it, and let their burden fall. It struck the bottom of the grave like a filled grain sack. It was one of the disinterred corpses, like a mummy covered with a layer of frozen mud. Hubei and Dinger picked up the stretcher again without pausing or looking up and vanished into the mist. And Gnotke and Gimpf came up in their turn and performed the same routine. When it was a dead tank driver or a rifleman, half of the dog tag, the belt, leather straps, and contents of the man's pockets were placed on the ground next to Technical Sergeant Aslong, who stood silent as a post making a short vertical mark on a sheet of paper each time Hubei and Dinger or Gnotkin Gimp came up. After every fourth stroke, he made a cross stroke. They did not speak, though lost here in the mist, they were not under strict surveillance. They had lost the habit of talking, just as they had ceased to expect warmth or light in the holes where they spent their nights. While Gnotkin and Gimp were making their third or fourth trip, an artillery shell burst nearby. Splinters howled through the air and clods of earth thudded back to the ground. Although the blast scarcely touched them, thick streamers of smoke drifted by their heads like a warm breath before dissolving into the whitish mist. The two men paid no attention. One in front, one behind, they continued on, dumped their burden, went off again and again returned. Sixteen cubic yards of human flesh were required to fill the grave and not all the corpses could be transported in one piece. Where the infantry battalion had fought, they had to pluck fragments of flesh and rose-red entrails from the frost-whitened underbrush. Once, for several days, Gnotke had been the recipient of one of those rare privileges granted at the discretion of the officer in charge. He had been relieved of the duty of carrying the bodies and instead had taken up the position held by Aslan today standing by from morning to night, watching as the grave gradually filled with mud-coated figures, with contorted faces, insanely staring eyes, severed legs, arms, torsos, and unrecognizable fragments of flesh. Dear Sepp, my poor dear Carl, darling sweetheart, my dear son, dear brother and brother-in-law, my darling, my sweetest, most beloved Max. So began the letters he had collected and, in the evening, placed with the other possessions that had been picked up. Then he would draw up a list of names for the Graves registration officer. Darling sweetheart, my dear husband and papa. These were voices from a far distant shore. They had faded to a whisper that could not reach Gnocchi. He knew that those to whom the letters were addressed in September, when the sun was hot and the earth dry, had lain on the step like dry wood and had been gathered like dry wood. And he knew that, after time had passed, they had lain without withering, with all their juices intact, and had been somewhat heavier. And that when more time had passed, there had already been days when the temperature was as low as 13 and even 22 below zero Fahrenheit. They had lain hard and heavy as stone on the stretcher, freezing in sitting positions, or into spread-eagled St. Andrew's crosses that made them even more difficult to carry and took up a disproportionate amount of room in the pit. My darlingest boy, and take good care of yourself, and don't volunteer for anything, don't push yourself forward, 
and be sure your feet don't get cold, pad your shoes with cardboard, and all the other phrases in the letters couldn't possibly apply to the withered summer corpses or the fresh autumn corpses or the refractory frozen corpses. These were indifferent, meaningless, silly phrases, as Gnotki knew. The other things in the letters, the hopes, fears, geographical or military observations, meant nothing at all to Gnotki. He had reached the point where hope no longer exists. I'm waiting with longing for the end, and with still greater longing for your first letter after the battle, so that I'll be certain you... What kind of end could there be, and what kind of battle could be followed by letters? Alas, there's still no end in sight to the fighting around Stalingrad. When the city is taken, it will more or less finish this year's offensive. At most, operations in the Caucasus will continue. If we should succeed in taking the Klukov, Mamasov, and Cross Passes, since the winter campaign is possible south of the Caucasus, and then we might at least take the Baku oil fields before the year's out. The struggle for Stalingrad still goes on. Today we saw it again in the newsreels. I'm so excited. When will the place fall? Perhaps tomorrow? Sunday, as a Sabbath gift, we shall hear that the city is entirely in our hands. Again and again in these letters, Stalingrad. Stalingrad. But the oft-repeated word meant little to Gunotsky. His past, he never thought about it, had been cut off sharply ten months before, and his present was without reality, without even geographical reality. Wet, cold, sand, graves. Even at night, water dripped. Even at night, sand trickled into his face. On this autumn day, it grew dark soon after three in the afternoon, and the mist settled like a blanket over the system of bunkers, pits, trenches, and barbed wire, concealing everything beneath it. The land was cloaked in darkness, and it was gloomiest in those flimsily covered trenches where the outcasts of the disciplinary battalion lay waiting for the night upon rotting straw and muddy stained shelter halves under guard. In that damp spectral night, Gnotki sat up once and brought his face close to that of Gimpf, with whom he had been together for so long. Mad, he whispered. Gimpf stared at him and said nothing. This is Edison McDaniels. You've been listening to a special presentation of surgicalfiction.com. If you've enjoyed this, consider leaving a review and don't hesitate to tell your friends about us and subscribe. Also, remember that I am an audiobook narrator. You can find many of the books I've narrated on Audible, searching under my name, Edison McDaniels.